It's good to be with you. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Uh, you have in your hands a bulletin, or nearby anyway, and let me draw your attention to a couple of things uh, in that bulletin. First of all, there are sermon notes, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, those are for uh, your benefit as well as mine. Uh, if you're not in the habit of using them, I do I recommend that you at least keep the bulletin open uh, to that outline. And some of the details I've provided in there, they may prove extremely useful uh, to you this day. The second thing you'll find is an insert in the bulletin. Uh, it looks like this, for those of you in the back. A Passion Week. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to chapter 16. That's a typo on my part, not verse 9, verse 8. Passion Week, Mark chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, a week from now, is Resurrection Sunday. Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday bracket what we term Passion Week, the final week of the Lord's ministry culminating in his crucifixion and resurrection. And what I have provided on this insert is an outline of Passion Week based on Mark's gospel. And so the first day, that corresponds to today, Palm Sunday. We read of this day in Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. We read of his arrival in Jerusalem. The people lay their garments and branches, palm leaves, before him, hence Palm Sunday. And Jesus inspects the temple. Having done so, he returns to Bethany for the evening. And then we have Monday, chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Jesus returns to the temple. Uh, This time he cleanses it of the moneylenders and of the merchants. You have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And then we have Tuesday. A lot happens on Tuesday. Chapter 11, verse 20. Through the remainder of the chapter all the way through chapter 12, all the way through chapter 13. And there are a number of dialogues, discussions, as the Jewish religious authorities come at the Lord Jesus. There is a personal challenge. By what authority do you do these things? There is a political challenge. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? There is a theological challenge. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? And there is a moral challenge. Which commandment is most important of all? And having responded to those challenges, Jesus curses the temple in that lengthy discourse that we have recorded in Mark chapter 13. That's Tuesday. And then we have Wednesday, a little tricky in Mark's account, because the events of Wednesday are actually included in the first two verses of chapter 14 and again in verses 10 through 11. In the intervening verses, we have Mary's anointing of Jesus with oil. It actually occurs on the preceding Saturday. But Mark records this event here because Mark has a very interesting habit in his book of bracketing important events. And what he does for effect is he will bracket an event with the opposite in order to accentuate the principal lesson. And so we have Mary's lavish devotion. He records it here bracketed by what? The Jewish religious authorities' opposition, vehement opposition and plot to destroy Jesus. 
Then we have Thursday, chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. The preparation of the Passover, one of the Jewish annual feasts whereby they celebrated their exodus from Egypt through the slaughter of that lamb. And then we arrive at Friday, chapter 14, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 15. Very helpful to divide it into seven scenes. We have the upper room. Scene number two, the Mount of Olives. Scene number three, the Garden of Gethsemane. Number four, the high priest's courtyard. Number five, the governor's palace. Number six, the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary's cross. And number seven, the grave. Saturday, silence, the Sabbath. Sunday, first eight verses of chapter 16. Jesus rises from the dead as Passion Week. I've given it to you for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first is this. I'd like to encourage you. Oh, I'd like to exhort you uh, to make use of this uh, this week, either personally as an individual or as a family. Perhaps take those texts as they correspond to each day, beginning with Sunday, Palm Sunday today, culminating in Resurrection Sunday, next Lord's Day. And so you might want to go to each of those texts each day and review the contents of those verses and consider what we glean concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That might be a bit too much for you to bite off and chew. So another, another very plausible recommendation is this. Just take the events of Friday, seven scenes, and look at one scene beginning today, culminating uh, in next Lord's Day, the upper room, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, so on and so forth. And consider, ask the all-important question, what does this scene reveal concerning the person of the Lord Jesus? And what does this scene reveal concerning the work of the Lord Jesus? So I commend this outline to you for your own study, for your own devotions this coming week. Now, the second reason why I've included it is this, so that we're all on the same page and understand exactly where we are in Mark's gospel account. Uh, We began back in June of last year, very first chapter, very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We went all the way through the first 10 chapters. We arrived at Passion Week, chapter 11. We have covered the events of Sunday. We've covered the events of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We are now in our study considering the events of Friday. Last time I was with you, we looked at the very first scene the upper room, the last Passover, is the first supper. The Passover terminates. The Passover culminates. The Passover finds its fullest expression in Christ our Passover, who has been sacrificed. With that great sacrifice, Passover is abolished. Passover is fulfilled. And the last Passover becomes the first supper, the Lord's Supper, whereby we remember Christ's sacrifice, the lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world, according to the decree of God. We remember him in the simple celebration of the cup and the bread, his body which was broken and his blood which was shed. Today, next Lord's Day, we're going to move into scenes number two, And number three, the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. And so follow along as I begin reading in verse 26 of Mark chapter 14. 
Yes, I'm going to go as far as verse 52. And when they had sung a hymn, and so that brings to an end, a culmination, uh, what transpires in the upper room and the institution of the Lord's Supper. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written. And here he quotes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And so here we have before us the Garden of Gethsemane. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, commenting on this text, wrote the following. Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. Spurgeon makes three 
particularly insightful observations. First is this, in reference to the garden, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth, the holy of holies. It's a reference to the temple. The temple, as established by God, divided in two parts, the holy place, the most holy place, behind the veil, the holy of holies, where resided the ark of the covenant, the throne of God, the mercy seat, the cherubim. The garden is the holy of holies. That is the inner sanctum of our Lord's experience during his life. Now, at first glance, we might object to that. Spurgeon, back up, hold on. Surely the cross is the holy of holies in our Lord's life on earth. Here's the thing, and here's what we must grasp. It is pivotal to our understanding. There is a direct correlation between what transpires in the garden and what transpires at the cross. They are inseparable. The garden, and this is crucial for our understanding and our grasp of the full depth of the gospel, the garden actually shows us what happens at the cross. Let me state it another way. We cannot make sense of the cross apart from the garden. In the garden, we see precisely what happens at Calvary's cross. Therefore, it is in the garden that we enter into the Holy of Holies. Second observation Spurgeon makes is this. The garden is a mystery. Like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. He's referring, of course, to what we read in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out shepherding his flock and startled when he beholds a bush and a fire in the midst of the bush and yet realizes that the bush is not consumed. That is a mystery, meaning what? It is inexplicable. It defines, it defies human comprehension. Uh, it transcends our finite understanding. When we use the term mystery in the context of Scripture and our knowledge of spiritual truth, this is what we mean. We are referring to something which is true, but something which our finite minds cannot fully comprehend nor grasp. And so we proclaim that we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. At times we recite here together the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. When we witness baptism here at Grace Community Church, those who are baptized are baptized in what? In the name, not the names. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God has a name. His name is what? It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There is distinction. And yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. We affirm it. That God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in one eternal essence, substance. Can you explain that? Can I explain that? How? We don't know. We have arrived at a mystery. 
And so it was Augustine, that early church father, great theologian in the history of the church, back in the 4th century, as he penned his all-important treatise on the doctrine of the Trinity, he decided it was time to take a break. His mind was just spinning. And so one day he decides to take a break, break and go for a walk on the beach, on the shores of the Mediterranean. And as he begins to walk on the beach, he encounters his apprentice. And he notices that his apprentice has a bucket in his hand. And his apprentice is filling the bucket with water from the Mediterranean Sea, the ocean, and then walking over to a hole and pouring the water into the hole. And Augustine asks him, what do you think you're doing? To which his apprentice replied, I am pouring the ocean into this hole. Augustine was very blunt, you're crazy. To which his apprentice replied, you're the one writing the book on the Trinity. It is like trying to pour the ocean into a hole, the hole being our heads. We can't do it. Do not shy, Christian, do not shy away from the term mystery. Scripture is full of mysteries, not the paranormal. That's not what we're speaking of. We are speaking of truths which Scripture affirms. We believe that absolute truth resides with God alone. God has revealed what he deems to be necessary and what he deems to be sufficient for us in his word. We use our reason to discern and consider and understand and comprehend what God has revealed. But there are times where our reason arrives at a dead end. We enter the realm of mystery. The Garden of Gethsemane is a mystery. We need to understand that going in. There is far more happening here than our finite minds can grasp. Third observation Spurgeon makes is this. The garden is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. Meditation, we use that word not as it is used and as it has been popularized in our day, Sadly, in our day, to meditate means to empty our minds. That's not biblical, scriptural meditation. A meditation, in a biblical sense, is to fill our minds. It is to fill our minds with the Word of God. Fill our minds with the Word of God, whereby we muse over it. We mull over it, seeking to internalize the Word of God, so that it grasps and grips the affections of our heart. You see, our hearts are like water, and meditation is like fire. And so if you want to boil water, you add a fire, you add the flame. And so water is cold, there it's sitting in a pot. You add the flame, and soon, eventually, that water begins to boil. Our hearts are like that cold water. And it is scriptural meditation as we internalize the Word of God and mull over the Word of God. It is scriptural meditation in the hands of the Spirit of God whereby our hearts begin to boil. That's how we need to approach the Garden of Gethsemane. Our goal is that as we see the Lord Jesus in the Garden and as we ponder the significance of what is happening in the Garden that our hearts might boil in love for him. Now, having made those three observations, we've set a bit of a framework as we come now to the text at hand. And what I want to do as as, as we enter into the text with this attitude of, of broken, 
Broken meditation, heartfelt meditation. I want to begin by making four observations. And then we're going to see that these observations culminate in what the author of the book of Hebrews states in that book, chapter 5. But observation number one in our text is this. What do we notice? Firstly, Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled in soul. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, that's the 11, Judas is gone, sit here while I pray. And he took his little inner circle, right, Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The terms don't do it, folks. They just don't do it. Distressed, yeah. Troubled, sorrowful. These terms kind of rest uh, weightless, don't they? Jesus is horrified. That's what the terms mean. That's what the expressions seek to convey in the original language. Jesus is distressed. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is sorrowful unto death. Jesus is absolutely horrified. He's like you take a candle of wax. You take hardened wax and you set that flame next to it and it begins to melt. It becomes all liquidy. That's what the Lord Jesus is like. His soul is like hardened wax next to a flame that begins to melt. Horrified. I've tried to enter into this. It is extremely difficult for us to enter into this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Arriving at the scene of an accident and discovering a loved one among the victims. That's sheer horror, isn't it? Can you imagine entering one of the concentration camps at the end of the Second World War? You get it? That's horror. Can you imagine sitting in that movie theater in Aurora when the shots were fired? That's sheer horror. Yet these pale in comparison. These are feeble, feeble comparisons to the affliction that the Lord Jesus enters into in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is like wax melting before the flame. He is sorrowful unto death. He is greatly distressed and troubled. He is horrified. Second observation we need to make is this. Jesus pours out his soul to his father. Verse 35, and going a little farther. And so he has left eight of the disciples, the Mount of Olives, somewhere in the garden. He has moved on, proceeded with Peter, James, and John. Now he has left them behind. He is solitary. He is alone. Off he goes a little farther. He fell on the ground. So he is prostrate, face down on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What is the hour? He uses the expression again later in verse 41. It is enough. The hour has come. What is the hour? Verse 36, and he said, here we have his prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
What is the cup? What is the hour? What is the cup? Yet not what I will, but what you will. The answer to the question, what does he mean by this hour? What does he mean by this cup? The answer is found earlier in the narrative. Go back to verse 27. And Jesus said to them, here he is prophesying, he's foretelling what's going to happen in just a few moments. You will all fall away. For it is written, and here he quotes from the book of Zechariah, I, it is the Lord of hosts, it is God speaking, I will strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. You go back and you read Zechariah 13, you read what precedes that statement there. We have the following phrase. Remember, it's the Lord of hosts. It is God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Is the idea, is it called a scabbard? Something like that, that the sword is in? The drawing forth of the sword, the gleaming of that broad sword, and the striking of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. By whom? I will strike my shepherd. That is why the Lord Jesus is horrified. Understand, friend, and, 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 it, and it's so important we go over this and we be so clear on it because it is always, 99% of the time, misportrayed and misrepresented in so much of what we see and in so much of what we hear. Jesus is not horrified at what man will do to him. He's not. He is not horrified because of what man will do to him. He is not horrified because of his approaching physical suffering. We never hear one groan from the lips of the Lord Jesus on account of his physical suffering. When he is crowned with thorns, beaten with fists, scourged with whips, or pierced with nails, Jesus is horrified because of what his Father is about to do to him. I will strike my shepherd. He has, listen to this sentence, he has an intimate sense of God's displeasure against the sin that will be imputed to him. Let me repeat it. You can't understand the cross without it. Jesus has an intimate sense of God's displeasure against the sin that will be imputed to him. And so in his agony, as he sweats, and his sweat is like great drops of blood, in his agony, in this hour, this dark hour of of sheer horror, what does he pray? What does he cry out? Remove this cup from me. The cup is what? It is the cup of God's wrath. It is this striking of the shepherd. God, awake, O sword, and strike against my shepherd. I will strike my shepherd. It is as he perceives his father's displeasure with the sin that will be reckoned to him, the sin that will be imputed upon him at Calvary's cross, he cries, remove this cup from me. Now here we go, friends. We're going to probe the depths of Christology. The Son of God. We believe God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe the second person of the Trinity 
the Son of God, what did he do? He assumed humanity. He assumed humanity, meaning he took to himself body and soul. He did not cease to be what he always was, fully God. But at a moment in time, he became what he was not. He took to himself humanity, a body and a soul. The soul consists of what? Our faculty of understanding, the mind by which we comprehend things, the heart, the affections by which we feel things, and the will by which we choose things. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and you might just rattle your head a little bit at the first, but this is extremely important. Jesus has two wills, doesn't he? Jesus has two wills. He is fully God. He is fully man. As fully man, he, the, his, his deity veiled. And he lives, this is the mystery of the incarnation. We can only go so far and no farther. The mystery of the incarnation is this, that as his deity is veiled, Jesus lives in complete submission to his Father, complete commitment to his Father, in complete and absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God. Here we hear Jesus cry, remove this cup from me. But he immediately follows it with what? Not my will, but thine be done. We're going to get to this a little later. Let me just give you a preview now in Hebrews chapter 5. We read what concerning that, that occurrence in the Garden of Gethsemane? Although he was a son, he learned obedience. We'll come back to it. It's tricky. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so here we have the Lord Jesus pouring out his soul to his Father. Third observation is this. Jesus pours out his soul to his disciples. Brings us to verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, focuses on Peter, that's significant. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes off and he prays the same prayer. He returns. Verse 40, he finds them sleeping again. Again, he challenges them. Off he goes again, prays a third time, comes back, and they're sleeping yet again. What's happening here? What is the significance of this? The significance, we need to go back to verse 27, is very clear. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You're going to abandon me. As it is written, again, Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now look at verse 29. Peter speaks up. He said, even though they all fall away. Remember, the other ten are standing there. You can imagine the looks he must have received at this point. Even though these guys all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, and truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Emphatically. Now, here we are in the garden. Three times. Even before he denies him and the rooster crows. In the garden, 
three times. What does Peter do? The other disciples as well, but Peter, he has stood out and he's representative of the whole. He has fallen asleep. What's the point? He just, Peter, Peter just isn't unable to stand firm in Jesus' darkest hour. He's unable to even stay awake when Jesus is praying. That's Peter. And friend, that's you. And friend, that is me. And that's his point in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here's the problem. The spirit indeed is willing. Here's what we are though. The flesh is weak. Get this, friend. Get this starting point of the gospel. Please understand this. You and I, we are incapable of even one hour of true discipleship. Let me actually rephrase it. I've been too generous. We're incapable of even one minute of true discipleship. Completely incapable of true devotion. Completely incapable of true discipleship. And the Lord Jesus is making it clear exactly why he is going to the cross. He is making it clear exactly why his soul is tormented and horrified. He is making it clear exactly, precisely why the Father will strike the Son. It is because we are weak. Do you remember our call to worship? It was the very first thing we declared. Very first thing we celebrated this day. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. I am incapable of even a minute of true devotion. A minute of true discipleship. A minute of heartfelt devotion. I am of flesh. And therefore I am weak. Here's a great stanza from one of the songs we often sing. For me it was. Hear these words. For me it was in the garden. He prayed. Not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs. Griefs, that's language taken out of Isaiah 53, synonymous with sins, weaknesses. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. For me it was in the garden he prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but praise God, sweat drops of blood for mine. He pours out his soul to his disciples. Fourth observation is this. He pours out his soul to death. And this brings us to verse 42. Three times he has prayed. Three times he has challenged his disciples. He has poured out his soul to his father. He has poured out his soul to his disciples. And now he declares in verse 42, Rise, let's get out of here before the betrayer comes. Rise, let us be going. He walks forth. He embraces what is about to happen, transpire. See, my betrayer is at hand. And here comes Judas, having prearranged with the soldiers that he will betray the one they want, the one they seek, with a kiss. They seize him. Verse 46, one of the disciples, we learn from the other gospel narratives that it's Peter, he draws his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest. There's a skirmish. The Lord Jesus vanquishes the skirmish. He calms the entire situation. He challenges the rabble, the soldiers. Have you come out? This is verse 48. Have you come out as against a robber? 
with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But here's the truth. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scripture? The very next verse tells us. And they all left him and fled, which drives us back where? To what the Lord Jesus says in verse 27. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the, sheep, the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And so we have Jesus, greatly distressed and troubled in soul, We have him pouring out his soul to his father. We have him pouring out his soul to his disciples. And now in the language of Isaiah 53, the great servant passage in the Old Testament, we have him pouring out his soul to death, willingly going forth and embracing the cross. Now in the sermon notes, I've included those verses from Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 through 9, or you can flip quickly in your Bibles to find that text. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, we have an explanation of everything we have just considered out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you realize that? Scripture often comments on Scripture. And in Hebrews 5, we have a commentary on the Garden of Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, it's his incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, who is greatly distressed and troubled in soul. Jesus, who is horrified as he contemplates the cross. Jesus, who with tears now pours out his soul to his Father, remove this cup from me, crying out, knowing, saying, declaring, all things are possible with you. And then look at what we read next in Hebrews 5. And he, that is Jesus, was heard because of his reverence. The term heard means delivered. When was he delivered? He was delivered from the wages of sin. He was delivered from the wages of sin arising from the imputation of our sin to him at the time of his resurrection. His father heard his cry. His father delivered him from the wages of sin and the resurrection testifies to it. Notice thirdly what we read there in Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That does not mean he was disobedient and had to be taught how to obey. No, it means that although he was son, the divine son of God, he, by way of experience, he learned what it meant or what it means to obey even to the point of suffering. And now look at the culmination, the last statement out of Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. And being made perfect, That is, by learning obedience to the point of suffering, he was made perfect. That is, he was consecrated. He was sanctified. He was presented as what? A suitable offering and sacrifice for us. Therefore, what does he become? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. At times in Scripture, 
Salvation and the means by which we are saved is ascribed to the meritorious cause, God's grace, Christ's sacrifice. At times, it's ascribed to the instrumental cause. We receive the gift of salvation through faith. And at times, it is described by the final cause, which is what? New obedience, evangelical obedience. That's how it's described here. He being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, friend, that should make your heart boil. That makes my heart boil. I have numerous reasons why. Let me give you three. The first is this. It intensifies our resolve. It intensifies our resolve. I sneak into the garden, and I see him there prostrate on the ground. I see the sweat falling like great drops of blood. I see him crying. I perceive his horror at what is about to happen at the cross. I perceive his horror as he, has, as he experiences an intimate sense of his father's displeasure toward my sin, which is imputed to him at Calvary's cross. Friend, that intensifies my resolve, my resolve towards sin. You struggling with sin? You struggling with envy? You in the grip? Are you in the grips of uh, bitterness, lust? Your temper, you're just losing it every day, every hour. Selfishness, selfishness, completely self-absorbed, uh, preoccupied. You need to spend some time in the garden. I need to spend some time in the garden. When, when, when something or something threatens the object of our love, so for example, if, if something or someone threatens or, or hurts uh, one of my girls, and you know what this is like, we become like a mother bear, a wounded mother bear robbed of her cubs. We become ferocious. The more our love for someone, the greater our ferocity the greater our zeal when they are threatened or hurt by someone else. Are you getting where I'm going with this? Friend, if you're struggling with sin, creep into the garden. If you find habitual sin has the better of you, get into the garden. You find even this day you are in the clutches of sin and just day after day the same old thing. Silently sneak into the garden. It is impossible. I submit to you. It is impossible to toy with sin while gazing upon Jesus in his condition of sheer horror. It's impossible to toy with sin while gazing upon Jesus in his condition of sheer horror. It intensifies our resolve. causes my heart to boil. Why? It strengthens our faith, our faith in him. We enter the garden and we hear him cry, remove this cup from me. What is the cup? What is the hour? It is that, that, that moment in which the father strikes the son, strikes the shepherd. It is the mo- moment, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his agony. As God's wrath and righteous judgment and indignation fall upon him on account of my sin. And I understand this. He drank that cup in full. And I know who I am. I am weak. Not one minute of true devotion. 
completely unable to please him, completely unable to render unto him anything meritorious in his sight. But I rest fully, completely, finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was so holy, says one preacher, that he had to die for us. Jesus was so loving that he was glad to die for us. That strengthens my faith. We sing in another one of our songs, death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, left but the love for me. What are you trusting in? Your performance? Oh, God help you. The fact that you're here this morning, God have pity on you. The fact that you give to the church, you're morally upright, you're better than so-and-so, God have mercy. We are weak and pathetic in the sight of God as a result of our sin, unable to merit one ounce of his favor and grace and loving kindness. I stand before you as a man who rests in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I rest in a Savior who drank that cup that cup full of God's wrath, drank it down and left not one drop for me. And I stand before you in Christ, clothed with his righteousness. I stand before you with the assurance of sins forgiven. I stand before you as one, yes, still weak and sinful in my flesh, but one who is at peace with God because I am found in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It strengthens our faith. Thirdly, it causes our hearts to boil. How? It sweetens our sorrow. Hmm. It sweetens our sorrow. We're in the garden. We see him face down. We hear him cry, remove this cup from me. And then we hear him utter these precious, precious Precious words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you recall the Lord's Prayer? In the Lord's Prayer, he commands us to pray what? Your will be done. Here, he shows us precisely how we do that. Not my will, but your will. Consider what he was facing. Ponder his stress and agony. Again, his horror. The weight of what he was about to bear and undergo at Calvary's cross. The abandonment and the forsakenness upon the cross. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you ever feel, friend, right now, um, not do you ever feel, do you feel as though you are being crushed under a tremendous weight right now. It's an unbearable weight. Do you feel as though a thick curtain has been drawn, hiding the sun's rays from view, and it's just this cloud of all-pervading darkness? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel deserted? Are you lost in the incomprehensibility of what God is doing? Friend, look to Jesus because he shows you the way forward. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what you are going through at this very moment better than you do yourself. 
Do you understand that? As a man living, his deity veiled, as a man, body and soul, living in submission to his Father and in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, remove this cup from me. No, not as I will, but as you will. You see, you know what our problem is? Our problem is we're, we're obedient when it's convenient. At least I am. Yeah, yeah, we're all zealous for obedience. As long as it's convenient, the moment it becomes inconvenient, well, either then we begin whining or we seek to change our circumstances or we question God's goodness and faithfulness. Now, here we see the Lord Jesus completely devoting himself to the disposal of his loving heavenly Father, and he shows us the way forward in our darkest hour. We look to Jesus, our high priest. We draw near to the throne of grace, and he is ready, he is able, he is willing to bestow grace and mercy upon us in our darkest hour. He shows us, he teaches us how to delight in God's fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me take you back to Spurgeon. I began with him. And let me conclude with him. I pray the Spirit of God impresses this upon us. Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. Our God, we do pray the pouring forth and the working of your Spirit this day. Grant us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive. We behold our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in the garden and upon the cross. We're acutely aware of why he hung there. We step back and stagger at the realization that it is our sin that nails him there. And yet we find great comfort, boundless joy, and bountiful assurance in the knowledge that with that sacrifice you are well pleased. And by faith, yet again, we declare our love for him. Our trust in him alone as a perfect and worthy sacrifice, able to wash away all sin and every stain. And we thank you and bless you in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.